really what we're getting at is a distinction between government policies that are designed to promote safety versus government policies that are designed to dictate morality. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Field Tripping. Today is another episode of Field Tripping where we are mixing it up a bit again. Joining us today is one of my absolutely favorite people on this planet. After listening to this conversation, you'll know why. And our very own Field Trip Health Medical Director, Dr. Randy Sherlock. Randy is a graduate of UCLA Medical School and the Yale University Department of Therapeutic Radiology, where he gained expertise in the most advanced radiotherapeutic technologies available. Randy is also a psychedelic therapist trained by the California Institute of Integral Studies, where his approach to healing draws from both Eastern and Western traditions. But today, we aren't here to talk about personal healing or hearing about Randy's personal stories of psychedelic experiences, though they may pop up. Uh, To be clear, we are here to talk about healing, but healing on a societal, cultural, and political level from one of the longest, deadliest, and most expensive wars ever, the War on Drugs. Our conversation today is about understanding the war on drugs, when it really started, and the effects of how it's playing out today. So, Randy, thank you for joining us today, and welcome to Field Tripping. Well, thanks for having me on the show. I'm looking forward to it. It's always good to have you. Today, I'm going to take a bit of a different role as the host of the podcast, and I hope you're okay with this. Today, instead of being the typical inquisitive interviewer, I'm going to take more of the role of an engaged student interested to learn from you on the war on drugs. But before I hand the keys to the field tripping bus over to you, permit me to ask this. I know you're very much a Renaissance man, a physician, a psychedelic therapist, and more, but where did your interest and expertise on the war on drugs come from? That's a really good question. My interest in combating the war on drugs really stemmed out of the realization that the United States federal government had lied to me. The role of government is for people to cooperate together to make the world a better place. And the United States government has definitively taken some steps in the wrong direction. You know, if I could quote Sam Harris in his very first Waking Up with Sam Harris podcast, he said that the war on drugs is one of the great moral failures of our time. Exploring the details of what he means by that is a fascinating, fascinating subject for a podcast. It sure is. So before we get into that, though, what was that moment for you when you woke up, you're quoting Sam Harris's uh, podcast, in essence, uh, and realized that the government was not serving its purpose? Do you, do you rem- remember the exact moment or was it a kind of evolution in your head uh, that eventually culminated in this realization? Yeah, it's both. I mean, it was it was an evolution punctuated by some eye-opening moments. And the first moment that is seared into my memory is When I was uh, in my residency training to be an oncologist, I was treating a young woman with Hodgkin's disease. She had horrible nausea. And let me preface this story by saying that I am a product of the 80s. I was very profoundly affected by Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign. And back in the day, there was this uh, advertisement scaring people out of drugs by showing a frying pan and an egg. And the, 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 the fried egg was your brain on drugs. And I believed that. And so I never, ever experimented with anything illegal when I was a kid because I wanted to be a doctor. So here I am, a doctor, and I'm treating this woman for Hodgkin's disease. And every single anti-nausea medicine that I'm throwing at her is not doing anything. 
And I went through the list of everything until I finally, she just said, you know, Dr. Sherlock, is there anything left? And I said, well, I said, there's marijuana. I was terrified to actually give this woman marijuana. It was the first time in my career I'd ever even thought about it. That was the first patient that I wrote a prescription for a pill called Marinol. And for those listeners of yours who don't know what Marinol is, it's a synthetic THC, identical molecule that's in the cannabis plant. But rather than being a Schedule One illegal substance as the plant is, Marinol is Schedule Three, just like ketamine. I can phone it into a pharmacy without problem. It helped this woman tremendously. And she didn't turn into a drug addict. And that's when I first got the inkling that maybe Nancy Reagan had lied to me. I think we have a, I think we have the title of the podcast, Nancy Reagan lied to me. Um, it's so funny though, even, even on that note, and I, I do want to get into the conversation about the war on drugs, but I'm curious here, which is Marinol was an FDA approved synthetic form of THC and you still had hesitation around even prescribing it to patients. Yeah, that's a great observation, but that goes to show you how deep the psychological programming was with this war on drugs. We can get into the history, but the war on drugs dates back to the second century with the Roman Empire, and every single time medicines are criminalized, the message is the same. It's really bad for you, and I I believed that in my soul, and it it was hard for me to overcome that bias just to write a legitimate medical prescription. But to further the story, after that one patient, I started giving out Marinol like candy. And I had a lot of patients coming back to me saying, you know, this Marinol was okay, but then I smoked my friend's marijuana and that helped even better. And not a single patient turned into harder drug user. Nobody came an ax murderer. And that's when it really became clear to me that, that something was wrong with the messaging from the federal government. My, you know, formative years, so to speak, I was, I was very much, I won't say anti-drug or anti-alcohol. Like if my friends wanted to drink or, or do drugs, like there wasn't a lot of judgment for me, but it wasn't for me. And, and that was punctuated to use your word, not by any messaging from the government, although that was certainly resonant in my head. But I remember going to a concert. I was 16 years old. It was one of the first Edge Fests in Toronto, Ned's Atomic Dustbin and Our Lady Peace. And I think Blur played there actually. It's a pretty good lineup. But I had taken some antihistamines because uh, it was a summertime to deal with allergies. And it made me feel spaced out for a couple of weeks, this FDA or Health Canada approved drug. And I felt so out of control for the longest time. That scared the shit out of me, to be quite honest, being like, oh my God, is this what drugs do? I don't want to experience this again. Obviously, my my attitudes have, have evolved, but I very much shared your perspective early on about a fear of drugs. And, you know, one of the things I found interesting about the whole conversation around the war on drugs, and and I certainly fell prey to this and, and sounds like you did until these moments, is that there's this presupposition that the use of drugs by definition is bad or wrong or dangerous. You know, I was even reading a Vox Media article and there's a sentence in it. It was about the war on drugs as I was preparing for it, where the sentence was, Drug use remains a very serious problem in the U.S., even though the drug war has made these substances substantially less accessible. Inherent in that idea is the notion that drug-based 
drug use is bad. Whereas, you know, I, I, I would argue that drug misuse or drug abuse is bad. And I'm sure you share that perspective right now, but that's kind of like the foundation. It's like a foundational piece that even in this balanced reporting, it's drug use is bad. And I've really shifted in it when it's like, no, it's not necessarily bad or nothing is inherently bad or good, I suppose, but drug use in and of itself can be very constructive as we're seeing these days. You know, that's an interesting point you raised because really what we're getting at is a distinction between government policies that are designed to promote safety versus government policies that are designed to dictate morality. Vast majority of drug users in the United States and Canada are not addicts. They have a responsible relationship with their substances of choice, but there is a significant contingency, especially within the United States with its puritanical heritage of wanting to mandate morality through criminalization. And that's just an inappropriate use of government power. I mean, because I'll tell you straight up, in many respects, the war on drugs is a war on religion. And it goes back to the Roman Empire. It goes back to the Spanish Inquisition. And it goes back to Harry Anslinger in the 1920s. It goes back to Richard Nixon. A lot of these um, efforts to criminalize drug activity are directly at direct attempts at, at criminalizing people's religious practices. And that's a direct violation of the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. It's utterly insane. Yeah. All right. Well, on, on that note, like take, take us back, take us back to your previous comment about um, the, the war on drugs really starting in second century Rome or Roman Empire. Yeah, so one of the uh, brilliant people you've had on your podcast was Brian Morescu. The results of his 13 years of private research culminated in him publishing a book, The Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name. And really what his work did was tie together some of the archaeology suggesting that the paleo-Christians who were performing the ceremony of communion in the first and second century AD were actually using a psychedelic brew uh, known as the Cacheon that came from the Eleusinian mystery ceremonies in Greece. And it was in the second century AD that the Roman Empire outlawed the psychedelic component of that communion wine, which is why for 2000 years, we've now had a placebo ceremony rather than actually a medical a medicine ceremony that can invoke the divinity within each person participating in that ceremony. And so then you fast forward to the 16th century when Spanish conquistadors come to the New World and they find the indigenous people of uh, Oaxaca imbibing in the use of psychedelic mushrooms. And they're so against this that they actually criminalize the use of these sacred molecules, sacred plants to be punishable by death, not just cut your head off, but they tortured people horribly as a punishment for simply using a sacrament that's part of their thousands year old culture. And decisions like that have been perpetuated up through modern times and the uh, Controlled Substances Act from Richard Nixon was really just an extension of these ridiculous policies. In each case, um, what was 
what was the foundational rationale? You know, um, I, I know Brian talks about it in a bit and the immortality key, but maybe if you can sort of lean into that a bit, that would be great. Yeah, it's a great question. In every single case, and we're talking about the Roman Empire, the Spanish Inquisition, the Harrison Act from 1914, the Marijuana Tax Stamp Act of 1937, the Controlled Substances Act from 1971, they're all about reducing the threat to the status quo. So to go back to the Roman Empire, the Cacheon and the ceremony at Eleusis really was designed to help an individual person identify what a, a religious or spiritual person might call one's inner divinity. And that directly threatens the, the church because if you can find God within yourself, you don't need a priest. You don't need to go to confession. You don't need the institution of a church and you don't need to tithe your income. The power structure that the Catholic Church afforded to the early Roman Empire was threatened by these mind-opening substances. And so, in order to control the people, they had to get rid of these substances that allowed people to find religion without dogma. So, effectively, an implement of control. Absolutely. Uh, is, is really what it boils down to, that to the power structures. I know this sounds so conspiratorial, um, but essentially the power structures that be are threatened by independent minds is, is really what it boils down to. You're absolutely right. And, and it's uncomfortable to talk about it in a modern context because right now we have so many conspiracy theories um, that's undermining modern political discourse. So to add to this story by invoking a, another conspiracy story, theory sounds a little, feels a little uncomfortable, but those are the facts. Right. And interestingly, uh, I was recently in Costa Rica where we started production of Ordinary Trip or documentary. I don't know if I've sent you the trailer for it, but you I did. I it was fantastic. Oh, okay. Perfect. I don't know why I never connected the dots, but we had a, a San Pedro ceremony and someone pointed out that San Pedro is a reference to St. Peter, uh, which was actually a name, I think, adopted by some of the conquistadors who experienced San Pedro. And they realized that it was because St. Peter controlled the gates to heaven or was, you met St. Peter at the gates of heaven, if my limited knowledge of Christian religion is, is accurate. Um, and, and so it was aptly named after St. Peter, uh, which is kind of a, a very positive and I think honest reflection of what the experience of San Pedro is. Uh, it's just so ironic. Well, that that's a great story. I appreciate you sharing that. I, I had not realized that that was the, the derivation of naming that, but if they did, you know, have sort of a, a death experience where they find themselves in front of the pearly gates uh, talking to St. Peter, that is identical to the entire thesis of Brian Morescu's book, The Immortality Key. There's a plaque on a monastery on Mount Athos in Greece at a, at a Greek Orthodox monastery that says, if you die before you die, then you won't die when you die. And really what that's referring to is, is the mystical type experience that can be elicited from psychedelic medicine use where a person has a complete loss of ego and a loss of self and you find your consciousness kind of retracting back to its source that feels divine and connected to everything. And it's very likely that that's what the experience was of these conquistadors 
that had them feeling like they were knocking on the doors of heaven. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's, I think it's worth, uh, uh, parsing that last comment a little bit further though. Um, if you die before you die, then you don't die when you die. Um, yeah, that's worth an entire podcast. It is. Uh, so let's spend some time on it. But the the essence of it is that very often people who ex- have uh, intense psychedelic experiences, and this can be, a, as far as I know, across any compound, often report a sense of connection that I think scientifically, you and I both can accept that the the molecules that make up our bodies were once formed in stars and literally came out of the planet, you know, through the food our mothers ate, which then their bodies turned into our bodies. And, and so, you know, there's a physical nexus between the stars and our bodies. And I think most people accept that we are literally made of stardust, but that on a spiritual level, even though I know that term will turn people off on a spiritual level, people are like, well, but that's just our body. That's just the chemistry that, you know, when there's a lot of people who think that when you die, that's, that's the end of the spark of whatever it is to be alive and it's gone for good. But the people who have these transformative psychedelic experiences really have the sense that no, we're all deeply interconnected, that we're all part of the same life force. And so this is just a, a physical shell, you know, that really exists. And you can talk about the philosophical considerations and feel free to, to like, just be here to have an experience and, and learn something and, and grow. And, and then we take those lessons back to this universal life force. Uh, and I totally get it. It sounds woo woo, uh, but I also am starting to accept it myself. That's the essence of if you die before you die, then you don't die when you die. Because through the psychedelic experience, you experience what it's like to be dead, but being dead, you're not actually gone. You're just back with the source of life, whatever that may be. Is, is that a correct understanding? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I really love your terminology there because it's one of the things that people don't understand who try to understand this intellectually is that, and and this is a, a kind of a criticism of Western science-based industrial culture we do not recognize that there are forms of knowledge that cannot be communicated by the intellect. And the objectivity of scientific exploration has become such an important keystone in the epistemology of our culture, you know, the study of what we know and how we know it. Science is held up as really kind of the only authentic ruler or milestone that people can use to to reference reality, but it completely discounts the human experience, something like taste. Science can't explain taste. We can explain all the components that go into a flavor and how the taste bud receptors are activated in our tongue and how our brain processes it, but how the taste of a mango appears to be the taste of a mango is something we don't understand. And these, these, states of consciousness that are affected by psychedelic medicines is just like a flavor. You can't explain it to somebody in words. The only way they can know these existential states are to be in one, experience it. How would you respond to someone who says, 
but it's a, a temporary artificial state when you're in the midst of a psychedelic experience. So it's not quote unquote real. It's just an illusion. Yeah. Those are great conversations to have. Um, and the answer is, well, how do you know it's temporary? And the answer might be because you are experiencing it as temporary. But my retort to that would be, well, how do you know it's not your human form that is the temporary expression of your consciousness and that your consciousness is a loving, self-aware energy with agency that has no form? And when you have a psychedelic experience, you you revert to that core that you are. Most people who have those experiences will come back and say that being in that core of pure, loving, self-aware energy felt more real than what we perceive as the real world. So that, that, that being in that state isn't the temporary thing, that is the permanent thing. And then we come back into our human form, which is the temporary experience. I've been challenged on this, so I'm going to ask this question. Um, what is the purpose of then being in this physical form? Why leave that state of, you know, a loving self-awareness to, you know, bounce along and bump along and, and, and fall down in, in this human state? Well, anytime you're asking a why question, it's a supposition and your best guess. And you sort of have to ask the source of whatever's happening for their reasoning. And so what you're asking is, why did the universe manifest itself? I'm not confident about whatever answer I have, but the best explanation that I've ever heard to me was explained to me by a modern teacher of non-dual wisdom. Uh, there's a man named Rupert Spira that I would encourage all of your listeners to just get on YouTube and watch some of his talks. He's when I first saw him talk, I literally hollered to my partner, Emily. I said, come look at this man. He is the worst public speaker I've ever seen in my life. But that's simply because he's, I'm high energy, but he's very slow, and very methodical. And he is not uncomfortable to take a minute long pause while on stage to contemplate something. But his explanation of why nature has manifested itself into a temporary physical form is because it wants to have experiences. All of these mystical traditions, base reality is, is a non-physical thing with no time, no mass, no energy. It's like a, of the void of, of Buddhist canon. And one imagines it has agency and the power to manifest itself. Why wouldn't it? And so it, it's manifest itself into you so that it can have the experience of being Ronan and it manifests itself into me so it can have the experience of being Randy. And our purpose in life is simply to have the experience of being you and me. Right. I mean, it, it makes rational sense. It is certainly and still something I'm trying to digest and, and accept as truth, um, but it, it does answer the question. Um, even though I suspect a lot of people are not persuaded by the answer, it is a complete answer. Um, but, you know, the more time I spend on this, the more it becomes the correct answer in my mind, uh, you know, and, and 
talking about the illusion, and, and this goes back to your comment about the, the taste of a mango, which may also be the title of this uh, this podcast, because I like that too. It's like the experience of sight. It's like if you cut into a person's optic nerve and took a look inside, you wouldn't see a picture of Randy on my computer right now running down my eye. There'd be, be electrical signals going down. You know, There's no picture in right. my eye. There's only electricity that my brain takes and converts into, um, through what some people call the sense of imagination, into what I experience. But if you accept that to be true, then everything I experience from what I see to what I touch, to what I smell, to what I hear, to what I taste, and all the other senses that we don't talk about are literally being made up by my brain or my mind as we go. It is unique to me and it is completely... I was going to say artificial in some ways because it is, but it's it's completely ethereal. There is no objective sight, right? It, it is just a conversion of electrical signal into something we're, we're making up. Um, and and so, you know, it, it is. Yeah, I think the word you're looking for, it's entirely subjective. Your whole experience of everything that you've ever experienced, taste, sight, taste, sight sound, emotions, everything, it's all a subjective impression that your mind has. And that's that's what science hasn't yet to really, rec- really recognize or understand. Science can only describe objectively verifiable third-party uh, states who cannot touch an investigation of the subjective first-person experience. Totally. And then you get into the Occam's razor part of it, which makes studying quantum physics so challenging is as soon as there's an observer, the state actually is affected by the fact of an observer and that changes the outcome. Um, and, and I know there's a couple of things I want to kind of dig into. Um, why don't we start with that, which is like, I, I, I know. Well, well, Ronan, before we go on, let me just circle back um, and just address, you, you used the word truth when you had asked me about, you know, why does nature, you know, turn it physicalize itself. And I, I hesitate to use words like truth or fact. Um, I'm more comfortable saying, uh, just saying that I'm agnostic about ontology. Like I don't know what's true and real, but the language I tend to use is saying things like the preponderance of the evidence that I've come across in my life suggests to me that the most likely story is that the universe is a self-aware loving energy that manifests itself. Um, but I, I tend to, to, to let go of, an, of a desire to have a truth because it's just not going to be found. No, I like that. There, there, there's an elegance to it and it yet also a super challenge because at least the way most of us are raised these days, we're looking for a truth. We're looking for definitive. We like the simplicity of right and wrong, yes or no. Um, and when it gets fuzzy, it gets really inconsistent with the whole paradigm that we live in right now. And it's really uncomfortable for me to, to just sit in a state of unknowing because I'm so driven to know, you know, with certainty. Yeah. And that's exactly why Buddhist teaching involves the use of koans. Okay. That's not a concept I'm familiar with. Can you, can you explain that? So a, a koan is a, a little statement or question that is meant to highlight a paradox. And it's not meant to ever have an answer. It's meant to have the student of Buddhism be comfortable with the paradox. 
So my favorite work of, uh, of Western art that kind of demonstrates this paradox is Rene Magritte's uh, painting of a pipe. And underneath the pipe, it says, this is not a pipe. It, it's a great piece of art to just look at because it, it really helps highlight how to think about something that is a paradox. Because, of course, it's a pipe. It's a picture of a pipe. But it's not a pipe because it's just an image of a pipe. And so both things can be true, that it is a pipe and it's not a pipe. Um, and a lot of these, these uh, issues with mysticism and an intelligent universe kind of fall into that paradox. Zooming out for a second, and sorry, I'm going deeply philosophical, uh, but I'm, I'm also going to ask your opinion on, on what the preponderance of evidence uh, that you've experienced provides for uh, is... If this reality is the universe creating Randy and Ronan to experience itself, essentially, uh, and I apologize if I'm paraphrasing that improperly, I kind of look back through going back to the second century, and I'm sure it existed well before the second century, but even using the second century, why there has been these consistent societal crackdowns against the freedom to experience that. That's one of the paradox I have with any kind of religion, all loving, all encompassing, all accepting religions is we seem to create realities uh, that seemed hell bent on denying that truth. And, and I'm curious to know how you think about that. Oh, uh, that's a great question. Um, and I have some very definitive thoughts on that. So people who are connected feel like they live their life connected to their inner divinity, which is a connection to everything, have a very, very hard time with conflict because any conflict against another person is felt as if it's a conflict against a, a, a part of yourself. Um, but people who don't appreciate that sacred connection that we all have to each other people who live entirely dominated by their egoic mind see themselves as individuals and they think that their priority in life is to do what's best for that individual. And that's exactly what the failing is of America. Our whole system is not based on being a collective cooperative and doing what's best for the group. It's the higher you can climb up the ladder, the better. And if you have to stab somebody in the back for that, well, that's, you know, that's, that's fine. That's part of the deal. Well, these governmental agencies that have criminalized or religious um, organizations that have criminalized these substances are doing it because they are, don't feel that loving connection to other people. And they're simply trying to control other people. The very best example of Drug criminalization as a means of control came from the Nixon White House. You know, I'm going to read for you a quote from Richard Nixon's domestic policy advisor. It's a guy named John Ehrlichman. And he's one of the guys who went to jail for Watergate. But let me read to you a quote that John Ehrlichman gave to Harper's Magazine in uh, 1994. And it was about why he and Richard Nixon literally just invented the drug war to control people. He said, is a quote, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, 
the anti-war left, and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities, we could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. It, that is not the type of policy that would be created by somebody who feels a warm love for all human beings. And I certainly think there's, there's just a lot of, like I saw a quote from Elon Musk recently, uh, and I know there's a love-hate relationship with Elon Musk out there. And, and so I'm only taking this as, as a pretty insightful thing, but he commented that our entire regulatory regime is just, you know, want to pick a date, but like for the U S it's been, 230 years or something like that of law on top of law, on top of law, on top of law, on top of law. And no one goes back and cleans it up. It just keeps stacking and stacking and stacking, getting bigger and bigger and bigger because the kind of one pushback I'd have at that the authoritarian nature of some of these policy decision policymakers is like, I, I now know a number of people in very uh, senior roles in government. And I can tell you they're the right kind of people. They're very I don't know if they have deep psychedelic experience, but they're very loving, open-minded, you know, trying to pursue what they believe is best, but they're walking into a system that's been designed exactly to the contrary. So it's not necessarily, there are definitely probably bad people in there, um, but not all of them are. And it's just like a, a regime, you know, that you get stuck in and, and then power dynamics come into play and everyone wants to maintain their influence and get their piece of the story done. And, and it just becomes you know, an, an unchangeable mess. And, and, you know, that takes me on the topic of every once in a while, I stop and think about how much of our world, uh, modern world since like the 1960s has been built on fighting the war on drugs. Um, you know, and if you think about how many wars have been perpetrated, I decided to look into like Manuel Noriega and Panama, uh, how many laws exist, you know, or anti-money laundering laws by and large addressed at terrorists and, and, and you know, drug cartels. All of that kind of stuff, all of that ridiculous, severe, autocratic kind of regulation was basically a response to the war on drugs and how you continue to execute and perpetrate the war on drugs. And it's just mind-blowing to me how we sit there and accept this to be true because... You know, one thing we haven't talked about is just how much of a failure the war on drugs has been uh, in terms of achieving its ends. Uh, whether you agree with it or not from a policy perspective, it's really shit the bed. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and what's unfortunate is that the folks responsible for enforcing the legislation think that taking a publicity photo with bags of cocaine that they confiscated is their milestone for saying what a good job they're doing. Well, that's as stupid as a body count in the Vietnam War. I think we murdered something like a million Vietnamese people and only lost 55,000 American lives, but we lost that war. So just having a body count as a proxy for success in that conflict was ridiculous. And it's just as ridiculous for DEA agents to show up a pile of cocaine and have that be a, some sort of reflection on their, their value. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's absurd. And, and it results in, 
you know, people doing relatively harmless things, going and being hardened in jails that we have to spend public money on to, to operate. And, and so not only is it not solving the problem, it's in fact perpetrating it and making it worse. It's like it, it dumbfounds me that not every single politician in the world has said like, this is idiotic, guys. Let's stand up and let's change the course to, you know, what we're seeing in, in Portugal, which by and large, based on what I've heard and read, has worked out extremely well in terms of achieving productive policy goals of, you know, helping with rehabilitation, uh, keeping people out of jail and then, and helping them lead productive, happy lives. Um, but here we are. And, and, you know, just watching, I'm, I'm in Canada, you're in the U S like even the inability of the U S to move forward with the reform around cannabis is, is mind blowing. Um, not that it's the only country. It's just staggeringly stupid. I mean, most of our states have decriminalized it, but the federal government is still holding on to John Ehrlichman's desire to, to control people. When Ehrlichman and Nixon got together and wanted to create this war on drugs, the way they did it was by creating something called the Controlled Substances Act. And they created a series of levels, or, or what they refer to as schedules, that categorized drugs based on whether they should be medically available or not. And Schedule One is defined as chemicals with no medical value at all, highly dangerous and highly addictive. Anybody who knows anything about marijuana knows that it doesn't come close to any of those three criteria, yet it remains criminalized at Schedule 1. Nothing's changed on the federal level. So I, I share your, your mind-boggleness. It's just utterly insane that this doesn't change. One of my dear friends is, is a United States congressman. And he's a person of color. So he's the very group that these laws were meant to hurt. And I've asked him, like, why don't you do anything about this? And his answer is that there's still enough people who are brainwashed by the marketing that drugs are bad, that politicians who actually care can't get the political clout to invoke changes. I'm sure there's more to it, but like it's a terribly defeatist attitude of, well, if I can't change it, I'm not going to try. You know, it, it change only happens through, in, hopefully it happens faster, but through incremental persistent efforts to to change the narrative. But, uh, you know, at, at the very least, it's nice to know that there are some people there that seem to have good common sense around this kind of stuff. And, it, and it's funny, I mean, you mentioned cannabis uh, as being schedule one for no good reason, psilocybin, LSD. The facts are, are pretty much there. It, it is inconsistent with the letter of the scheduling um, and what we know about these compounds now. Um, uh, but it'll still take a ton of time uh, to get it off. And well, well, to, well, to add one more substance, you know, the, the DEA's behavior when it came to MDMA was just absolutely criminal. There's a very clear policy that the DEA is supposed to follow to add a substance to Schedule 1. And in the 1980s, the DEA violated their own regulations and against the medical community's recommendations, they criminalized MDMA. And now we've got clinical trials from MAPS demonstrating that there's a very significant value to this medicine for curing PTSD. And while American vets are still killing themselves at a rate of 22 victims a day, the government is now saying, well, you guys need to do some science to show us that MDMA is safe because it's schedule one. 
Yeah. It's ridiculous. And and there's that kind of leads into the broader conversation um, that happens. It's on a, uh, I'm on a doing a South by Southwest panel next week. And one of the conversations that always comes up is the, the fact of legalization versus medicalization. And, and, you know, just so everyone's on the same page, legalization refers to something similar to what we've seen with adult use cannabis, which is you remove the criminal prohibitions. Maybe you restrict uh, access to people 19 or 21, depending on which jurisdiction you're at, uh, and then they can use it for whatever reason. And if they're using it for a medical purpose, then there may be some tax incentives or different pricing structures. And if you're using it just for, call it self-soothing therapeutic reasons, then you don't get the benefit of the tax, but at least everyone has it uh, for whatever reason, has access for whatever reason they want. What we see happening with psychedelics and, and this science-based approach with MAPS and, and certainly and, and all the other companies pursuing drug development, MAPS is very, very candid about their uh, desire for drug policy reform as well as approval, but um, is that you end up in a purely medicalized situation where only people with a, a so-called indication will have access to it, even though you know anybody, I think, who's had a productive experience with psychedelics, whether they have an indication or not, um, finds tremendous benefit from it, you end up excluding uh, a lot of people from the benefit of these therapies. And a simple analogy that I always like to work with is like to the extent that therapy is good for anybody. And I think everybody should have access to therapy. You don't need to be depressed or anxious or have trauma or anything along those lines to warrant going to a therapist. Then psychedelic assisted therapy is just kind of doing like that on, on steroids. It's just much more productive, goes more in depth, happens faster, is more transformative. So, um, you know, all of the people who would benefit from these therapies uh, in a medicalized model uh, get excluded, a lot of people. Um, and it's something that you and I have, have touched on quite a bit and just wondering where you land on that conversation as both what is the right policy as well as what is the right way to get there um, because they don't necessarily, might not necessarily line up. Yeah, so I, that's a great question. And, and let me preface my answer by saying I am not a policy expert. And so I am not married to my opinions. So I can just sort of share. Neither are most politicians for that matter. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I feel, so speaking about psychedelics in particular, because you know one thing we need to do when we have a discussion about drugs is kind of separate drugs into different categories. I think of crystal meth and opioids in a very different manner than I think of psychedelics. Just to clarify for your audience, um, I'll limit my comments just to psychedelics. And I, I agree with you. I, I, I don't think psychedelics should stay medicalized. You know, they need to be medicalized now because the medical community has to go through the, the science of demonstrating safety and efficacy. But once government regulators get comfortable with that data, I would hope that these medicines could be treated almost like, like vehicles or any kind of um, professional activity that one needs a license for. You know, if you want to be a stockbroker and sell stocks for somebody else, you need a, like a Series 7 license. You want to be a realtor and sell somebody's house, you need a real estate license. You want to drive a car, you need a driver's license. And I think it would be very reasonable to have some type of licensing program where people demonstrate that they have an understanding of the risks involved with using these medicines. They understand how to keep these medicines safe and they should be available outside of a medical context. 
but I don't think that they should be at the counter uh, at 7-Eleven so you can grab some smokes, a bag of Doritos and some mushrooms. You know, that's not a good idea. As a, as a physician, uh, you, you said some things that are uh, probably inconsistent with the way many physicians see the world. Um, do you ever find yourself getting ostracized by the medical community from some of your perspectives or is, are these conversations you'll, you share here and within the work we're doing at field trip, but when you, when you go to a, a radiology conference, you know, these are, are t- topics you don't necessarily indulge in. Wonderful question. And the answer to your question is that I invoke the wisdom of Stan Groff. Stan Groff asked, what is the difference between a mystic and a crazy person? And the answer is that the mystic knows who to not talk to. And so the answer to your question is I keep um, these aspects of my life very compartmentalized. People in the oncology world do not want to hear about psychedelics. Do you find that ever creates any kind of internal conflict for you or you've just kind of accepted that you, you need to keep that part of you compartmentalized? In the world of oncology, there's a fair amount of, of stress and uh, trauma, fear. And I've had some patients and even patient family members where uh, it was very obvious that they would dramatically improve their sense of well-being if they went through, say, a course of, of CAP, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Uh, before our field trip clinic opened, I referred some people to CAP therapists here in Los Angeles and my patients just looked at me like I was utterly insane. And so I, I, I'm, I'm a little resistant to do that just because the cultural, the wider cultural understanding isn't really there yet. That's entirely fair. And besides Nancy Reagan lying to you um, and, and kind of your opening your eyes to this broader conversation, what, what inspired you to pursue, for example, um, training with the California Institute for Integral Studies on, on psychedelic therapies and, and all that kind of stuff. Was there, was there a moment uh, when you're like, this is something that I want to incorporate in my life? Obviously, you still have your oncology practice, so it's not your entire life now, but it does seem to be a big part of your life, especially the work you do with us. Yeah, I, I think I've shared with you my own personal story, but just to briefly summarize, I, in my early 40s, was in a very deep depression from a series of unfortunate circumstances. And I was really stuck in a loop of rumination where I couldn't kick myself out of just this negative perseveration on negative thoughts. And I was seeing a therapist weekly. I was on a bunch of medicines from a psychiatrist. And a friend of mine suggested that I participate in a ceremony that'll keep the details private. But I always was afraid of what she was talking about, but I figured I didn't have anything to lose. And in short, I woke up the next day after my first ceremony, completely, totally cured of depression. And I don't mean like my depression scores were down and I could reduce my dose of Zoloft. I was done with therapy, done with medicines. I stopped everything cold turkey and it was remarkable. And so that is what I want to be able to share with the rest of the world. And that's the answer to your question, what drew me into this work. And I think that's a perfect place to stop. Um, it's a, a lovely note to end on. So 
I'm going to say thank you, Randy. This is going to be a little bit of a shorter podcast, but we'll, we'll have you back and, and we'll nerd out on some of the topics we've, we have t- we touched on uh, and go way more in depth, but this has been great for me. Yeah, I mean, the, the follow-up to th- this conversation is, well, okay, if drugs weren't criminalized, what do we do with them? You know, how, how do you help people? How do you prevent problems? And we now have a lot of data, like Portugal is a great example. So yeah, I'd be happy to continue this conversation. There are a few people that I appreciate and admire more than Dr. Randy Sherlock. I mean, here is a guy that has received medical degrees from some of the most prestigious medical scientific institutions in the world. A guy that operates in a profession with such a narrow scope of what is real and what is not. A profession and an academy that is viper quick to excommunicate without trial or inquiry. People who may simply question the status quo of objective reality defined by Newtonian physics. A profession whose sole pursuit is to remove from the world any possibility of mystery. And yet, here's Randy. A guy who is simply unafraid to out himself as accepting of and embracing the existence and the purpose of mysteries that medicine and science seem so bent on denying. In speaking with Randy, I couldn't help but come back to one of my favorite Tom Robbins passages in which he inquires about how can one person be more real than any other. In that passage, Tom goes on to suggest that people who are afraid to get their shoes muddy or their noses wet, afraid to eat what they crave, afraid to drink Mexican water, afraid to bet a long shot to win, afraid to hitchhike, jaywalk, honky-tonk, cogitate, osculate, levitate it, rocket, bop it, socket, or bark out the moon, are simply inauthentic. Not Randy. While I don't know for certain, I'm willing to bet that Randy, Yale-trained radiation oncologist Randy, has barked at the moon more than once, and that's why I love the guy. And it's also why he was the perfect person to come on and talk about the war on drugs with us. Because not only is Randy knowledgeable and thoughtful on the subject, Randy might just be the perfect enemy to the war on drugs. What the fuck are you talking about, Ronan? Might be the thought that's going through your head right now, but think about it. Randy lives so peacefully on both sides of the equation, the scientific and the transcendent, the logical and the emotional, the resolved and the flexible. In other words, he refuses to sit cleanly in one camp. He refuses to sacrifice his individuality to adhere to an ever-changing standard. In essence, he refuses to be controlled. And if nothing else, the war on drugs was fundamentally a war of control. Control of the lives and the consciousness and the spirituality of people. Randy is largely bulletproof. He operates within the system but refuses to be limited by the system. He challenges the status quo without picking fights with authority. In so many ways, the lessons that Randy bestowed upon us in this conversation are less about the chronology on the war on drugs and more about what it means to truly win the war on drugs. As a quick reminder, please follow, rate, and review our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and sign up for our newsletter at fieldtripping.fm. Thank you for listening to Field Tripping. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, breathe properly, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Field Tripping is created by Ronan Levy. Our producer is Conrad Page, and associate producers are Macy Baker, Sharon Bella, and Alex Sherman. Special thanks to Quill, and of course, many thanks to Dr. Randy Sherlock for joining us today.